me just ask a question, show of hands. How many of you guys have uh, been to our church six months or less? No, we won't embarrass you. Six months or less. Wow. Okay. We're glad that you're here. I wanted to, I wanted to share a couple of things before, before we launch into our sermon series as we continue it. Many people have been asking about how my sabbatical went. And some of you that were here last week, you got a chance to hear a little bit about how the sabbatical went. And I'll continue to share more things in the upcoming weeks. But I wanted to share two things that directly impact the life of our church. During my sabbatical, I got a chance to think a lot and long and hard about me pastoring and you church and our church family. And two things sort of became clear. And one is a confession. And second is sort of a challenge, encouragement. When we planted this church, the desire or the motivation to grow it was never a priority. We're driven by simple belief, and that is that if people got a hold of who Jesus is and his beauty and the power of the gospel, that they were just naturally going to go and tell people. Because you didn't need to be beat over the head with it. You didn't need to be guilt-tripped into it. We all know that doesn't work, right? doesn't work. So we just had our focus. Give a place where people can love God and love others, and the church will grow. And it did. It did. And then about three, four years ago, your pastor, and it will be Somehow lost track and got my priorities mixed up. And this is like totally embarrassing for me to share, you know, like, but I need to share it. I, I got like consumed and obsessed with like wanting to grow the church. And there was really no godly motivation for it. It's purely about my ego and my pride. So I need to confess that to you. And I need to apologize. Because um, what that did, is your second piece, what that did is it made me lose focus of what it is that I'm called to do. I'm called to pastor you. I'm called to pastor you, to care for you. And have as my number one priority, challenge you to grow spiritually to go deep and I haven't been doing that very well because here's what that did what that did was uh, it made me afraid to challenge some of you guys to go beyond being just mere spectators and bench warmers it made me afraid to challenge you to say hey this whole thing called the church and the Christian life, this isn't about coming on a Sunday morning, listening to sermon and going home. This thing called the Christian life is about committing. It's about joining. It's about sacrificing. It's about us being in it together. And if new community is not that place for you, God forbid, I said this a lot in the first four or five years. I said, if that place is not, this place is not that for you, then go find another church. And the more I said it, the church kept growing. In the last three, four years, 
I stopped wanting to challenge those of you that are like, yeah, no thanks, I just kind of come. I'm not in a community group. I'm not accountable to anybody. I don't serve, but thank you very much. I'm just going to... That's not right. That's not right. You guys, there are lots of churches all over the city of Chicago that would love for you to come and fill their sanctuary and then go home. This church is not going to be one of those churches. And see, even as I say that, you know, the whole insecurity, like, oh, they're not going to come back then. They're offended right now. You know, and it's, uh, you know, I've heard that voice for like three years and I'm tired of it. It's like, I, I care, but I don't care. Because you know what? There are some of you who love this church. There's some of you who sacrificed your butt off for this church. And you've been tired and frustrated for the last three years going, why am I carrying all the load? And you've been wanting to tell some of the people that are here on Sundays going, hey, I see you every stinking Sunday. You don't, do, you don't do jack. And you're not even accountable to a group. And you've been afraid to say anything because you're like, it's not my place. I shouldn't say anything, blah, blah, blah. But when is Peter going to say something? He never says, well, you know what? Things are going to change. This whole ministry fair, can I just tell you, it's embarrassing for me that we have to do a ministry fair. That's like us begging you like, please, oh, please, we need you. Please serve. Why do we have to beg people to serve? Do you care about this church? Maybe that's the deeper question, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Okay, well, okay. Now we're getting to the truth, okay. Well, if you don't care about this church, then you're not going to want to give and serve. But if you do care about this church, you've been sitting on the sidelines, hey, time to step up. Let me add this one caveat, and this isn't my insecurity speaking, okay? This one caveat is that there are many of you who come to new community because you're burnt out, you've been hurt from church, all that, and you're just here going, I just want to be able to breathe, Peter. I don't need more guilt trip, let's serve. Okay, those of you, I'll say this. We love the fact that you're here, and we love the fact that you're sort of rediscovering Christ in the Christian life. We love the fact that you want to find out for yourself again, you know, what it means to be a Christian, and we want you to be healed. However, let me say this. At some point, to really get better, you got to get out of bed and start walking around. You know? Like if you're like me, when I get sick, I get in my bed, don't bother me, I'm sick. My wife is like, it's been two weeks. I get out of bed. I don't want to get out of bed, I'm sick. Peter, get out of bed. Why? Because you're not going to feel better until you what? Okay, I got to get up. Okay, I got to put on clothes. I got to... To truly get better at some point, you got to go, okay. So if you're here and you've burnt out, tired, sick, hurt from church, I'm so glad you're here. Don't go other places. I'm glad you're here. But at some point, to really get better, you got to get out of bed. Time to get out of bed. Okay? The reason why we're doing this sermon series is uh, really, uh, I'm preaching to myself as I always do, but we're on this sermon series called Going Deep. 
And we're talking about spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. By the way, have you noticed? We don't talk a lot about spiritual maturity. Why is that? Talk to me here. Why is that? Somebody tell me. Why don't churches talk about spiritual maturity and growth and depth? Why is that? Because we're comfortable. Okay. Don't want to be challenged, right? Uncomfortable. Sure. That's one reason. Anybody else? Afraid? It's hard? Yeah. All of those reasons, right? Because all of a sudden, accountability goes way up, right? Well, we're talking about spiritual growth because I don't know about you, but I don't like myself the way I am. Sabbatical, one of the things. I'm disappointed in myself. I couldn't believe the amount of sort of sinful behavior, things about myself that I was capable of. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I didn't realize that I was capable of such pettiness. I didn't realize that I could feel jealousy like that. I didn't realize that I could feel a level of impatience and anger and frustration like that. It was all deeply embedded right here and didn't want very much so. I was also disappointed the fact that I love sin still so much and love God so little. I was disappointed at the fact that I'm not a very good father, I'm not a very good husband, and I'm, <laughs> I don't even know if I'm a very good pastor for, for all that matter. But I just disappointed myself. I've also disappointed God. Here's what I mean. And by the way, this isn't my Asian culture shame thing going, oh, Pete, that's okay. God's not disappointed in you. No, no, listen. It, it's, not, it's not that. It's there, but it's not that. Oh, here's what I mean. I'm failing, and the word is apt. I'm failing to live the life that God appointed me to live. Can I say that again? I've disappointed God. I'm failing to live the life God appointed me to live. In other words, I have appointed myself at the center of my life. And I said, God, you revolve around me. I've disappointed God from the central place he longs to play in my life. As a result, I'm consumed with myself. As I shared last week, I am a very self-absorbed person. I am. I am selfish. I'm self-absorbed. I'm self-centered. Anybody else? That's the inevitable result of disappointing God and putting us at the center. I'm realizing that I want to be different. I, anybody else want to be different? Anybody else want to go deep? Here's what the Bible says about where God wants to take you. We saw this briefly last week, and this is where we're going to go. Galatians chapter 5, Paul says... He calls it the fruit of the Spirit. He says, these are the result of walking according to the Spirit, living your life sensitive to and dependent upon the inner promptings and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in such a way that his leading and his influence dominate your life. This is where God wants to take you. He wants to to be described by these characteristics. Love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What is love? By the way, brief review, we're going to spend like one week on each of these, okay? Love. What is love? Love is serving the needs of other people for their sake, not yours. This is where God wants to take you and take me. He wants to be, he wants us to be the kind of people that serve the needs of others for their sake and not ours. That means that if you're growing in love, you don't give up on people. You can't say to somebody, I love you, but we're done. That's incompatible. You can't say somebody, I love you, but I can't stand you anymore, so I don't want to be with you. The essence of love is that you never, ever give up on that person, no matter what. Love. How you doing? 
How am I doing? It also means if you're growing in love, you don't pick and choose relationships based on, based on what they can do for you. Mutually beneficial relationships are characterized, you know, the world relationships. But if you're growing in love, you're actually serving people that do nothing for you. Hello. I did an evaluation of my life inventory, and I asked, I thought, I, I thought about all of the relationships in my life, and the only relationship in my life where this is true, where I love them no matter what, I love them regardless of what they do for me, is my children. And I didn't have any other relationship in my life where I'm just serving them for their sake, not mine, and I get nothing from them. How about you? What do your relationships look like? Do you have people in your life that you're serving, knowing that they do nothing? They can't help you be cooler, advance in your career, get into the inner social circle. Nothing for you. Joy. Joy is to delight in God for who he is in himself and not for what he gives you. So two things happen if you're growing in joy. One, there's an, emo- there's an evenness about you emotionally. <laughs> My wife, why are you so moody? You know what that means? Not for you, for me. My joy is contingent upon circumstances. Anybody? For crying out loud, sometimes my joy is contingent upon the weather. Hello? Can I get an amen, Chicago, right? <laughs> my joy is affected by the weather. I'm like, ah, how pathetic is that? But if you groan in joy of God, there's an evenness because it's not based on all these other things. It's based on God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is constant. Here's another thing. If you're growing in joy, you're increasingly more victorious over temptation. Why? The Bible says, the joy of the Lord shall be my strength. Joylessness creates weakness. You are never more vulnerable to temptation than when you lack joy in your life, soul dissatisfaction. I was just thinking about this. Think about some times in your life when you went to a dark place where you got yourself involved in things that you know you shouldn't know. And ask yourself the question, during those seasons, what was your joy satisfaction like? What was the level of soul? Hmm, yep, no, I'm good, God. I said this last week. When you're starving, don't go to the grocery store. Why? When I'm starving and I go to the grocery store at the checkout line, dip, dip. I'm like, I don't want that. I don't, want, I don't, I don't need that. Or you go to a restaurant. And you're starving and everything on the menu looks good? Like, if you're starving and your soul is dissatisfied, you are never more vulnerable to temptation. How are you doing? Right now. Joy. Patience. Patience is confidence and rest in God's wisdom rather than your own. That means that if you're growing in peace, you're getting less and less anxious over time. Christianity... Essence of it, here it is. There is a God, it's not you. That is the beginning of wisdom. (laughs) Essence of Christianity. And now, at first, it looks like bad news for some of us because, let's face it, we like to run the world, right? I like to be in charge. I like to know where things are. I like to. But when you think about it, this really is good news because it means that there is somebody who is way wiser, way more competent, who is in charge of running things. And that's not you, and it's not me. And you could rest in that. 
Can I just share something with you? Do you know why I have less and less peace in my life and grow more and more anxious? I think that I am in control of the outcomes of my life. Listen up. I think that I can actually control the outcomes of my life and I get all stressed out. By the way, if you're a control freak, you know what I'm talking about. If you are a control freak, you don't know the peace of God. You know a lot about the anxiety that's in you. Why? Because if you're a control freak, you actually think you are in control of the outcomes of your life. Listen, listen, I love my children, but I cannot control their destiny. And I can rest in peace. I could work really, really hard, but I'm not in control of the outcomes of this church. And I can rest in that. I could save and save and save for retirement, but I'm not in control of the stock market. And I can rest in that. Are you hearing me? If you're a control freak, you will never know the peace of God. Why? Why? Because you think that you're in charge of the outcomes of your life. You are not. I am not. God is. Every time you worry, opportunity to give it to God, experience peace. Patience. It's ability to suffer trouble without blowing up or giving up. I'll be quick with the rest of these because we've got to move on to today. It's the ability to suffer and even to be wrong without melting down and without becoming bitter. Patience is not just about, oh, this line is too slow. Oh, the waitress. Patience, opposite of patience, is growing resentment towards God and towards others. Are you growing resentful towards your spouse, towards your friends? You're growing resentful towards God. God, I want it right now. And it's not happening. Kindness, compassion that offers true friendship and not just help. Goodness, honesty, transparency, being the same in all situations. Can I just say something? Are some of you guys just tired of like being fake? You know what I'm talking about? Do you have friends where you feel like you have to act a certain way or else you, you know? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Just this week, I was in, I was in a, <laughs> and I'll say it was people from our church. I, I was in this setting, and all of a sudden I felt this pressure to be like, oh, I got to be cool. I got to be witty. I got to say things to me. And I'm thinking, what the hell is that all about? <laughs> and I thought this, I'm like, I don't want to be around people like that. Why do I want to be around people who have to be cooler or smarter or wittier? No, I just want to be with people who are like, we know who you we know you, and we love you. Chill out. Goodness. Faithfulness, loyalty, and courage. To be principle-driven, utterly reliable, true to one's word. Gentleness, humility, blessed self-forgiveness. And self-control is to master our emotions and desires rather than allowing them to master us. I struggle with this one. Anybody? Anybody struggle with self-control? Okay. Is transformation really possible? I got to move on to what we're going to talk about today. Yes. And this was sort of the 30,000 foot perspective, okay? Here's why transformation is possible. First Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says this. Grow up in your salvation. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And we said last week, and this is a 30,000 word breakfast, we said this is great news. This is encouragement. This is, ah, oh, I can breathe. Why? Because the Bible says, grow up in your salvation. In other words, the Bible says, these characteristics we just talked about where we're going today, not not that, not that, not that, maybe that, not that, not that, and certainly not that. I'm hopeless. 
The Bible says these characteristic attributes are not some foreign objects that are there that you have to import into you because you have so little joy, so little peace. I can't love like that. The Bible says grow up, meaning all these characteristics that should be true of Christians are already true of you. Because the Spirit of God lives inside of you. Is that good news? Oh my God. If that's not the case, we have no hope. If that's what the Bible says, the reason why God envisioned this for you, that you can be that person, is not because. He says, you have the divine nature and these attributes, not just in potential, but in real seed form in you. So it's not, hey, when are you? The Bible says, hey, when are you going to grow up and be the real you? Is that good news? Oh, my gosh. As we'll talk about today, that means that there's hope for me and there's hope for you. That means that these character attributes that ultimately describe Jesus Oh, you and I could live this kind of a life. Man, and that is wonderful news. Amen? Amen. Now, one other thing before we dig in today. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Jesus says something very sobering. He says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. But for a tree, it's recognized by its fruit. That means that for it to be a child of God, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. And so there will be, the Bible insists on it, there will be these characteristic attributes, these qualities growing in you. There's a balance here. Sometimes the fruit starts out really small. Tiny, tiny bit small. An apple tree that's growing, the apple, you can barely see it. Is, is that describe anybody? Like, oh, I, I, I need a magnet. I, I can't barely. But the Bible says, hey, It doesn't grow overnight. It takes time. It takes a season of nurturing growth. Balance, right? However, the other end, if you're a Christian and there is zero growth in these attributes in your life, you may be busy, very active, serving God a lot, but if these qualities are not an essential part of you, the Bible says you can't be sure you're a Christian. If you and I have the Spirit of God living inside of us, our life will look different than somebody who does not. How does this happen? That's what we're going to talk about today. One last sermon on sort of 30,000 foot perspective. How does this happen? I'm going to take you to the key passage. We're just going to look at one, two verses today that for me is foundational to everything we talk about in this church. Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. How then does this happen in our lives? How do we live into the realities? Live into the real. By the way, I gave this analogy last week. If you don't know what this is like, when I was a youth pastor, there was a seventh grade kid who was size 14 feet. 12 years old, size 14 feet. He looked really awkward. And we all thought, boy, first of all, he looks really awkward. But the second thought is, at some point, his body is going to grow into who he is. Rest of him is going to fill up. This size 14 feet may stay 14 feet forever, but he's going to grow taller. He's going to grow stronger. That's what some of us look like right now. We look kind of awkward, you know? 
There's parts of us like, oh, man, that was awkward. Yeah, all the time, right? That was a little awkward. Yeah. The Bible says, hey, hey, you have the divine nature and these attributes already in you. When are you going to grow up? How does that happen? Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Everybody look up here, please. Ah! This is so big. This truth is so huge, so huge, that literally this is like a four-week sermon series, but I'm going to do it in two minutes, okay? I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. And if you want to change, you want to grow, you want to go deep, this truth is so essential to you. Not knowing this truth is the reason why some of you are this close to saying, I give up. Here's what Paul's saying. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The I that he is talking about is the old self, as the Bible says. The self that was a slave to sin. The self, the I that was in active rebellion to God in his ways. The I that was in active sort of hostility against God. The Bible says, when you and I become a Christian, that I becomes so identified with Christ in his death and resurrection that whatever happened to Christ happens to us. You with me so far? So, When Christ died a real death on the cross to the penalty of sin, it's as if we died a real death to the penalty of sin, which means there is no more punishment coming our way. Do you know what that means? That means you are no longer under condemnation. That means that you are uncondemnable. That means that there's no way that God can look at you and say, child, unacceptable, Condemnable. God says, he looks at you and says, there's no more punishment coming your way. No more. Is that good news? You are not in condemnation. But Bible also says, not only did you become identified with Christ in his death, you also became identified with Christ in his resurrection. And when Christ rose from the dead, he defeated the power of sin. Now follow me here. Not only did Christ die to the penalty of sin once and for all, so that there's no more punishment and condemnation. He says we died to the power of sin. So when Christ rose again on the, uh, from the grave, the power of Satan and sin was broken once and for all. That means that you and I no longer live with the same relational dynamic to Satan and sin. You know what that means? I say this over and over again. We don't have to live the way we used to live because we are not the person we used to be. The leash was cut. And to walk in the spirit, the Bible says, you have to come to grips with this powerful truth that the leash that Satan had on you and the power of sin over you was cut forever. Okay, let me try a different way. Because for some of us, we're like, my experience doesn't do that. I still feel it. I still sense it. Here's what the Bible says. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, defeating power of sin once and for all, he won for you victory permanently over sin and death. That means we don't fight for victory over temptation. We fight from victory over temptation. Let me try a different way. Satan may have power over you, but he doesn't have authority over you. Satan may have power over you, he doesn't have authority over you. Analogy, today, men will go home and watch football games. That's what men do. They eat chicken wings, eat meat, drink beer, and watch football. When you watch a football game, I'm sorry, I know there are women who love sports, my bad. This is the reason why I don't give sports analogies, okay? I become very chauvinistic and sexist. But people will watch football games on a football field. Football players have power over the refs. 
Refs are tiny, beer belly, weak men who are old and slow. <laughs> Football players have power over the refs. They could knock the refs down. But the refs have the power to put you out. Because the jersey that they wear gives them authority over their power. Are you with me? Is that good news? Is that good? You like that, Janice? That means that Satan could taunt you from the sidelines. He could say, hey, don't you want to do that? But you have the authority to go. I'm dead to that. I don't have to live that. You can't taunt me. Is that good news? Some of you guys are living right now shackled because he has you actually believing that you have no choice but to obey. And the Bible says on the cross, Jesus Christ won for you once and for all victory over Satan and over sin. He may have a little power, but you have authority over him. So when that phone call is made today and that guy on the other line goes, come on, don't you want to, uh, you actually have the authority to go. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. When you are this close to blowing up to that person and letting them have it, and you could say to yourself, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Is that good news? Is that good news, you guys? This is powerful truth that you must, you need to know if you are going. Listen, can I just say this? I love you all, but there's certain phrases, and I use use these all the time. You don't need to pray. Father, God, will you bind Satan? Satan's already bound. You don't need to create a defeat that's already occurred. He's defeated. He's under your authority. Is that good news? You are free. If Christ has set you free, you are free. I know. It's going to take a while. Let's face it. We've been living like this for weeks and months and years, right? Enslaved, listening to his lie. It's not going to change overnight, but I want you to know this truth. And then he says what? But Christ lives in me. Why? Two-minute recap of a six-week sermon series on the forgotten God before I left. Here's why the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, okay? It's not warm and fuzzies. This is why Christ lives in you. It's not guide me when I need guidance, although that's part of that. It's not comfort me when I need comfort. It's as simple as this. First principle, the Christian life isn't just difficult. It's impossible. And all of God's people said, amen. And if you didn't say amen, you don't know the Christian life. Secondly, because the Christian life is impossible, we need a helper. Can I just say this? Some of us, our perspective is, Christian life is, you know, we do our best and then God extends grace. Let me just say this, common sense wise. If the Christian life was simply about doing our best, why did Jesus need to A, die for us? And secondly, why didn't he descend the Holy Spirit? God, on this, he knows all things. Doesn't he know when we've done our best? Of course he does. So if Christian life is simply about, God, I do my best and then when I fail, you extend your grace. There's no need for him to die for us nor send the Holy Spirit. What this says is God's looking for more than just our best and that's good news. God's saying, I want your life to be supernatural. Of course, the problem is our lives are neither super nor natural. So God says, I've sent the Holy Spirit to do that which you cannot do. So here's a third principle, right? The Christian life intended for, God is intended is only possible when Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, who lives in us, 
lives through us, this life for us. Christ lives in me. Why? All that God is calling me to do as a Christian, I cannot do on my own. It is through Christ who lives in me, living through me, this life for me. We're going to spend a few weeks on this as we head towards the fruit of the Spirit. Okay. Today, I feel like I've said this like three, four times. Today, here's the other half. If this is one half, left foot, right foot, right, left. One aspect is this aspect of the Holy Spirit, Christ living in me, in life of transformation. But this other aspect is what Paul finishes Galatians 2 saying, and this right here is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, and this right here should sound so familiar to you. Because unless we get this and embrace this, unless we recognize these principles and choose in our lives, we cannot live the Christian life. Turn your Bibles with me to uh, John chapter 15. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Park it right there. Park it right there. Park it right there. We're going to come to that in a little bit. We're going to come to that in a little bit. But Paul in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, The life I live in the body, I live by faith. Everybody look up here, please. Paul says, so the Christian life that I live, Christian life that I live, I live by faith. And here is the incredible truth they need to know. Paul is not talking about the Christian life at the beginning of it. In Galatians 2, he says, the life that I live by faith, he's talking about the Christian life every day after we become a Christian. What Paul is saying here is this, look at your growth in the Christian life, you're going deeper in maturity. You grow to, 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 to display these characters in your life. That life, you don't all of a sudden say, God, thank you very much for saving me. I got it from here. Take the Bible and try really hard. The Bible says, just as I began this journey by saying, Jesus, I don't need a second chance. Jesus, I don't need to rededicate. Jesus, I don't need to just give me one. Jesus, I cannot do anything to save myself from the penalty of sin. I need grace by faith. Paul is saying, the way that I live my life every day after is by saying, I don't need a second chance. I don't need to rededicate what I need. The same faith that saved me from the penalty of sin, that same faith saves me from the power of sin. Are you with me so far? I know this is going to be like, oh, for some of us, Okay. We're going to hammer away this again and again. Here's what Paul says. Here's what Paul says. Okay? He says, just as you began this life by faith, the life I live in, the body I live by faith. Now, let me, let me, uh, I don't even know what the word is. (laughs) I have some slides I want to show you. Slide number one, please. God, me. Here's what Paul says. There is a, An infinite chasm between God and us, sinful humanity. In order for us to bridge this gap, in order for us to go to the earth, in order for us to be connected to God, God says, you can't do it by efforts, you can't do it by good behavior. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, some of you know this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works. How do you bridge the gap between you and God? At first, by faith. It is by grace through faith. So look at the second slide, please. Second slide. Salvation is given by the grace of God, achieved through the power of God, offered through the Spirit of God, and made secure by the promises of God. This is how we become a Christian. Me, by grace through faith. Now, here's where we are today, if you're a Christian. There is a, next slide, please, a new you. 
and an old you, or me and new me. And Paul talks about these two versions of us, the new me, the one that's created in Christ the moment he comes into our lives, and the me that I still am. Anybody know what this tension is like? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah? Okay. Okay. Paul says, he uses the language of old self and new self. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by his deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Slide three, please. So, how do you do that? How do you become the Christian? How do you become the person that God created you to be? Paul says, slide four. It is also by grace through faith. Well, hold it. That's not what our life looks like right now. Here's the new me. Here's what God wants me to be through the Spirit. Here's the old me. And God says, okay. And our perspective, many of us, is thank you very much for saving me. Give me the Bible. Let me. And the Bible says, that was never intended. The way that you grow into the new you is by grace. Okay, I don't know what that means. I don't know if you're sitting there going, old news, simple biblical principle, why are you talking about it? Or, that doesn't make any sense. So here's what we do. Here's what we do. We've done four things. For some of us, to bridge that gap, we try harder. Can we just be honest here this morning? Raise a show of hands. How many of us have gone the route of try harder? Let's do this. Just for audible effect, clap if this clap. Try harder! Yes, 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 yes. Majority of us. Okay, thank you. That gives me blown. So it's try harder. Read another book. Listen to another sermon. Go to another retreat. Serve more. Work harder. Be nicer to people. I said this last week. Try and get up a little earlier. Get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you don't want to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning because nobody wants to be with you, right? Not even God wants to be with you, right? And I said this last week. This is so funny to me because we get up at four in the morning. We're miserable. We're tired. We're, we're just frustrated and we're angry. And so we conclude, oh, this must be God's will. And it feels really spiritual. Can I ask you something? How many of us really equate God's will and spirituality with something that's unenjoyable, unpleasant? Things like, anybody? Anybody? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. Clap to you. That's Satan. Satan. Satan goes, God wants to rob you completely of joy. So if it feels bad, if you don't want to do it, and it feels miserable, that's God's will for you, child. We're like, no wonder I don't want to do it. But we try harder. We think that this is absolutely God's intention for us. The harder you try, the harder, that's what it is. You lack effort. Just a little couple analogies. How many of you guys play tennis? 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 Okay. Some of you guys? Somebody that wants to return 110 miles per hour serve is your advice to them to swing as hard as you can. What happens if you do that? You've got no chance. Sometimes trying harder is the opposite of exactly what we ought to do. What happens when you try too hard on a first date? <laughs> the other person's like, ew, gross. <laughs> what happens if you try a little harder to impress somebody on a sale? You come across as pushy. 
What happens if you try really hard to cling to people? You're apt to what? For them to push you away. Imagine somebody saying to you things like this. Try harder to relax. Try harder to go to sleep. Try harder to be graceful. Try harder not to worry. Try harder to be joyful. And we want to go, I'm trying really hard not to punch you in the face. <laughs> Sometimes trying harder is the opposite. And here's, can I just say this too? The reason why trying harder, and I want, I'm glad you're laughing with me because we could all laugh at ourselves. The reason why trying harder is so dangerous is that in the Gospels, the people who got into most trouble with Jesus were people who thought they were working the hardest on their spiritual life. And check this out. Because they were so working so hard to be good that they couldn't stop thinking about how hard they were trying. And they stopped loving people. And they grew judgmental and critical. See, if you're one of these Christians and guilty, where you're trying so hard, inevitably you will be judgmental and self-righteous. Because you can look at all the other people who are not trying as hard and going, what the hell's wrong with you? I was reminded of that little scene on Simpsons, Ned Flanders, who tells Homer, we went away to a Christian camp. We were learning to be more judgmental. <laughs> I want to go, why is that camp so well attended? There's nothing that's a bigger turnoff to non-Christians and self-righteous Christians. And let me say this again. If the, if the approach of your entire Christian life is try harder to be the new me from me, you are not only going to fail yourself, but your witness as a Christian of the people around you will be shot. This is the reason why pride is a potential problem for anybody who takes spiritual growth seriously. Because as soon as you start to pursue virtue, you're going to wonder, why aren't people as virtuous as I am? What's up with that? So you know what sometimes God does? I learned this lesson the hard way. Sometimes God hides our own spiritual growth from our eyes. Has it happened to anybody? God hides our own spiritual growth from our eyes. Because while God's always at work in us, someone said, many times his work is formed, grows, and is accomplished secretly in our souls without our knowledge. Try harder. Sometimes... Here's the second way. We pretend. So we talk more spiritual than we actually are. We pray in public like we, like we pray actually more in private. And we pretend. So we flip from one spiritual experience to another, hoping to recapture that out, whatever that was. But again, isn't it exhausting pretending? This is why you're tired after a first date. This is tired after you come back from a job interview. And this is tired when you're around people that you can't be yourself to. And vice versa, there is something like, like that warm sweater feeling when you're around people who go, you don't have to talk more spiritual than you actually are. You don't have to pray like you know God the more you actually do. Just be yourself. And there's something else that goes, Whew, I don't have to pretend. I don't. You know our prayer is? That we would be that church. That we would be the kind of church where people don't have to pretend can I tell you something? The first journey of growth is being honest with God. Because God says brokenness pleases him way more than pretend spirituality. And here's the good news about God. God knows exactly where you are right now. And he says, child, you don't have to pretend with me. Just come as you are. Is that good news? Just come as you are. And the moment that you can say to God, God, I don't have to pray like the more than I actually do. God, I am simple. This is me right here, right now. We're going to do communion later. This, this is me, God. No pretending. 
No pretending. I've tried with my community group. No pretending. You know the last time I read the Bible. You know the last time I prayed. This is me. And God says, now we can grow. Third, some of us, we just lower the bar. We just lower the standard far enough and reason that if we can't meet the standard, <laughs> we'll just lower the standard so that the standard meets us. Can I just, this grieves me as a pastor. When I meet some of you guys, you come into my office, and you go, there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. There's nothing wrong. No, no, I did that. And then I go, can I ask you something? Like 10 years ago, did you feel the same way? And someone will be like, no. Well, what happened? Well, I just started compromising, and after a while, I got sick of feeling guilty, so I just told myself, it's all right. And then that went to, don't judge me. Don't judge. You don't know. Don't judge. So 10 years later, it's don't judge me. You don't know me, and you're doing things. 10 years ago, you're like, that's not God's will for my life. Anybody? Yeah, me. And then fourth, and this grieves me even more, some of you, you just give up. You're just flat out giving up. You're going, that bridge is impossible. I'm tired of trying harder. It doesn't work. I'm tired of pretending because I'm exhausted. I'm tired of lowering the bar. I give up. Part of the reason why I did this sermon series for you, those of you that are on the cusp edge of going, I cannot live a fake life anymore, and I'm done. I don't want you to give up. Because here's the great news. You ready? We can't bridge this gap. Can I get an amen? No, no, no. No, no, no. Like you mean it. Because you know it's true. I mean, if there was a chance to say amen, I said, let's just all admit, we can't bridge this gap. You'd be like, amen. Ready? One, two, three. Amen. We can't bridge this gap. And that's great news. Why? God never intended it that way. God never intended that you and I try and bridge this gap. Paul says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith. Self-improvement is no more God's plan than self-salvation. God's plan is not just for us to be saved by faith. It is for us to live by faith. The grace and the power of God that justified us continues to be at work to sanctify us. God expects to obey him, you guys, but that expectance of obedience is out of grace. It's by grace. Our growth into Christ-likeness isn't going to come because you're more determined. I'm going to try a little harder, be a little bit more disciplined. i got to rededicate once more. But that growth into Christ-likeness comes when you reach the end of yourself and you go, I can't. I surrender. You need to do it. And the power of God is releasing to you. Let me just show you real quick, and then we're going to take communion. John chapter 15, verse 4. You turn to there. Here's what it means to have faith in the Son of God. Because you're going, Peter, I know what it's like to say, God, come into my life. I want to be a Christian. But what the heck does that mean for sanctification, for growth? What does it mean that I need faith in the Son of God? Here's what it says, John 15, 4. Look what it says. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. There's a challenge and encouragement here. Here's the challenge. Ready? If you're taking notes. Challenge is you and I. Think of the imagery of a branch and a vine. Think of a branch that's totally caught up from the vine. Is there life in that vine? Is there life in that branch? Is there life in that branch? Answer? 
No, there's no life in that branch. The branch only has life as it is connected to the vine. And this is such a simple and yet hard, powerful truth. The Bible says that you and I have no spiritual life in of ourselves. None whatsoever. We've got none. It is only as we are connected and abiding in the vine that the life of God and the life of the Spirit flows through us. So here's a question. Are you connected? Are you abiding? If it's true that we've got no spiritual life in of ourselves, and the only way that we are of any use, any good, we are of any effectiveness, any growth, is if we are connected, are you? You're going, what does it mean to abide and connect? We're going to go to that. But here's the, here's the encouragement. Here's the encouragement. Jesus says, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, you're not expected to produce fruit. You're only expected to bear it. You're not expected to. Can you imagine a cut-off branch by itself? Ah, bing, there it is. We're going, it doesn't happen. No, it doesn't happen. But that's what we're like. We're like a cut-off branch with no life of God in us. And we're going, fluff, fluff, fluff. That's what it's, I'm sorry for the imagery. I'm really sorry for the imagery. I totally did not even think about that. I'm sorry for the imagery. Hey, at least I didn't squat, right? Come on now, okay? Is this good news? Not the imagery I'm talking about. You are not, listen, you are not expected to produce fruit. In other words, the Bible says you are not expected to produce self-control. Can I get an Amen. You are not expected to produce love. You are not expected to produce joy in the midst of stress. The Bible says you're not created. Why are redeemed change to produce anything? You are simply created to what? Bear it. Bear it. You mean I don't have to? No, you don't have to. I got to produce love. I got to love. The Bible says you can't produce this sucker. You're not equipped to produce. You are simply equipped to bear. Is that good news? As you are abiding in the vine and the love of God and the power of God and the life of God flows through you, the Bible says the inevitable result is that you will bing, 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 bing. That's not a lot of effort. No, no, no. Bing, bing. Versus, um, Philippians chapter 2 verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. It is who? It is who? It is God. It is God. It is God. I don't see your name on here. It is God. I am just hoping and praying right now that some of you, you're feeling this weight just come off of you. Because you're going, Peter, I've been trying to be self-controlled in my area with this addiction forever. And this is, that's, that's, you just described me. Like, I don't want to do it, but I really want to. I don't want to do it, but I really want to. I don't want to do it, but I really want to. So I'm going to want it. The Bible says, child, you're not expected to produce anything. You can't. You bear it. Radical change is possible. Everything we need, we have in us, but we don't produce it. It's God at work. Our part is just to plug into the new life that indwells us and to draw upon the supernatural power that lies in us. And by the way, the word abide is the Greek word meno, which means literally to make your home in it. In other words, he's saying, just plant yourself. Just plop down, plant, plant, plant yourself, get comfortable. Plant yourself, make your home in it. Verse 5, I'm divine, you're the branches. 
Whoever abides in me, I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me, verse 7, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. To which some of us go, I love that verse. I love that verse. Ask God anything. God will give it to me. Hallelujah. Here's the powerful truth. Do you know why? Do you know why God says that? Check this out. If you're abiding in Christ, you know his heart, his desires, his agenda, his will, his priority. You know his heart. You know his heartbeat. And so when you pray, you're going to ask for the very things that are on his heartbeat. And God answers that 100% of the time. Do you know what? To me, answer prayer is one of the signs on whether we are abiding in Christ or not. Romans 8, 28, it is a God works in you to will and another translation for that I love is God will give you everything you would have asked for if you knew everything he knew. God will give you everything he would have asked for if you knew everything he knew. Verse 8, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And the father has loved me so I loved you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As the Father has loved Jesus, Jesus says, that's how I love you. I love my children. But let me tell you something. My love for my sons and my daughter pales in comparison to God. God, the Father, loves Jesus the Son with the perfect everlasting love. And Jesus has the audacity to say, that's how I love you. The Bible has the audacity to say that you are God's portion, you are God's treasure, you are God's inheritance. You know what that means? What do you give Bill Gates that would make his heart skip a beat? What do you give the richest man in the world a gift that would make him go, oh! What do you give God, the creator and the maker of the universe? What do you give God? What can you possibly, what gift can you possibly give God, the creator, to make his heart skip a bit? You know what the Bible says? You. You and the thought of you makes God's heart skip a bit. And then Jesus ends by saying, abide in my love. Do you know what abiding is? Carlton, come on out. Do you know what abiding is? You are totally missing this if you think abiding is another list of things to do. You know what abiding is? Abiding is simply, listen, please listen. I'm almost done. Listen. Abiding is simply resting in his love for you. Abiding is not so much things that you are to do for him as it is about resting in his thoughts about you. Abiding is not striving more spiritual disciplines. Abiding, Jesus says, in his love. Abiding in his love is meditating and reflecting on, living your life, pouring over this powerful truth that the thought of you the thought of you and thought of me is what makes the creator of the universe skip a beat. And if you and I are sitting there today going, you know, Peter, I heard that. That's nothing for me. That's because you're not abiding in his love.
Jesus is saying, when you receive that, when you receive grace, you know what grace is? God's righteousness at Christ's expense is this powerful counterintuitive truth that you can never be righteous before God. So God offers righteous standing before him as a gift, not according to what we've done, but according to what Christ has done. And when you receive that, when you abide in that, when you pour over that, and when that truth becomes real, the life of the Holy Spirit begins to flow in us and we don't produce anything, but we begin to bear the attributes of God. And you actually start to change, and I actually start to change, not because we're told to change, but because we want to change. First John 4.19, we love him. Say this with me, what? Because he first, say it with me, we love him, what? Because he first loved us. Why do we do anything for God? Why do we live the Christian life? Why do we love God? The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. And that powerful truth, when it begins to resonate, when it begins to melt my heart, when it begins to soften my hard heart, when it begins to awaken and quicken my heart from what is so old and so familiar, the Bible says the inevitable result is the life of God is released into you. Is this good news? The gospel is good news, not advice. It would be terrible news if it was advice. Because if it was advice, it would still be up to you and me to do more and to try. And the Bible says it's not about, it's news. He has done it. Believe it. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll, be, you'll abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. I'm just going to share this because I know some of you guys are going to come up and go, but what about that verse in verse 10 where Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, it kind of sounds like if you do these things and I'll love you. Look at the context. He's not saying that at all. He's not contradicting himself. This is what Jesus is saying. He doesn't say that his love for you is a reward for having kept his commandments. Jesus says that one of the primary ways that we abide in his love is by keeping his commandments. How does that work? Verse 7, he says, pray and meditate on the word. Pray. Meditate on the word. Religious person says, I got to pray and meditate so God will love me. Jesus says, as you meditate on my word, the truth of my love for you that is all over scripture will begin to reign on you again and again and again. And he says, as you meditate on the truth of my love for you, thereby obeying my commandment to be a person who's in the word, he says, you will abide in my love and my love will begin to flow through you. What does this mean? Let me just share two incidences and then we're going to take communion. I don't know about some of you guys, but for me, one of the things I struggle with the most is performance relationship with God. Anybody? I actually, in my mind, sometimes believe, God, I didn't sin as much this week, so I'm going to give a good sermon, right? I actually believe that. Some of you guys, quiet time, prayer, school will go better, job, relationship, God will finally answer that prayer. You know what the Bible says? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11. I just want to leave this with you to meditate on. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. I meditate on this this entire week. 
as the anguish of his result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Another translation says, the result of his suffering, he shall see and be satisfied. In other words, God actually looks at me and he says, I suffered. But it was all worth it. I suffered, Peter. An inhumane suffering, but it's worth it for you. If that's true and that's real to my heart, I'm going to get upset because that girl didn't notice me. I'm going to get upset because that guy didn't notice me. I'm going to get upset because I didn't get the job. If the cosmic king of the universe looks at you, Brian, and says, I suffer, Brian, but it was all worth it. What possible petty things of the world can get to me in my insecurity, God says. Secondly, I got an email this week. And it was an email that was very, very critical. And it hurt. It hurt. I struggled with it. And I said to God, God, I, I want to I I pay back. I want to. And I heard the Holy Spirit. I heard the Holy Spirit saying, Peter, I know you're upset and part of the pain. It's just your wounded vanity. And we can deal with that. And the Holy Spirit, honestly, say to me, you're pretty messed up, but I'm not giving up on you. You're pretty messed up, but I'm not going anywhere. Plus, nobody thinks you're perfect anyway, except your mother. And this way, Peter, listen, he says, you don't have to pretend anymore. And we could get working and the areas in your life that needs to get worked on. Oh God, can I, can I still physical violence? No physical violence, Peter. No physical violence. That's why Isaiah says, we'll be kept in perfect peace if our mind is stayed on God. Here's a summation of what you've heard me talk about every week. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for non-Christians. The gospel of Jesus Christ and abiding in his love is for Christians. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just a pool into which we swim into Christianity. It's the pool itself. It's not just a diving boat. It's the pool itself. The gospel is not just the fire that ignites the Christian life. It's the fuel that keeps it going every day. The gospel is not just the ABCs, introduction, basics of the Christian life. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life and all that we need. The way we grow deeper in Christ is not by going beyond the gospel because the gospel is elementary. It is by going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel. I have a challenge this morning as we pray. And you need to be brave for this. How many of you guys are sitting here this morning and saying, Peter, that life you just painted about abiding in his love and about this journey being about meditating on that as the life and me not being able to produce it, I don't know that. Because my life, frankly, has been works righteousness, effort, pretend, lower the bar. I don't know what that's like. You and I need a major revolution of our soul to begin this journey. How many of you guys are willing to stand here this morning? Stand. I'm going to ask you to stand in my morning. Stand here this morning and say, God, I want that for my life. I'm not there yet right now. There's a lot of me. 
a lot of effort, a lot of righteousness, self. Stand from where you are. Come on. Come on, stand from where you are. Be honest. If this isn't you, don't stand. Please, don't stand. Stand from where you are. Stand from where I'm going to wait until everybody that wants to stand has had an opportunity to stand. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to wait until everybody who has an opportunity to stand to say, Peter, the fundamental approach to my Christian life has to change. I don't even know what that's like yet, but man, I can't do what I've been doing. Is that everybody? I want you to pray this prayer with me before we take communion. This is gospel prayer that I pray. Try and pray every day, every day, every morning. And I want you to pray this with me. Those of you that are standing, pray this with me. God, because I am in Christ, I know there is nothing I can do today that would make you love me anymore. And there's nothing I have done that makes you love me any less. Second gospel prayer. God, your presence and approval is all I need to have joy today. Third, God, everything gospel tells me about your intentions for my life is true. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that are standing along with me fully confessing and recognizing God and perhaps even some of us repenting of our self-righteousness and of our I can do it attitude that's been at the center forefront of everything that we've done God forgive me for trying to be a producer when you've never called me to be a producer of the fruit but to bear it God, forgive me for relying on myself and my strength and my wisdom and my self-discipline and willpower when I know, God, that that doesn't take me very far. Forgive me, God, for being judgmental, critical of other people who I deemed as being less spiritual than me. Forgive me, God, for failing to realize that your calling for my life is simply a the life of Christ flow in us. And Lord, as we take communion, God, this is the, the, the symbol, God, that you've given to us, the act, the ordinance, the sacrament that you've given to us, God, as people of God, that as we reach for the bread and as we reach to dip it in the cup, that it is our confession, it is our prayer, it is our, God, acknowledgement that, God, I cannot do this. And because of that, you have done it. And I will meditate on that. I will eat that. I will digest that. I will will live my life in recognition of that and God for some of us as we reach for that bread today and dip that in the cup may we be awakened anew Holy Spirit of God revive our hearts soften our hearts anew that the gospel the gospel the gospel that saves us and renews us the gospel the gospel the gospel of Jesus 
depths of our soul. And when you take the bread today, I want you to remember that he suffered for you and for me. But right now, your father stands in heaven, looks at you no matter what you did last night or last week. He looks at you, child of God, and he says, it was all worth it. It was all worth it.